0: movie floats by investing us with horror then with hope and then with something like deep knowledge of how far the complicity spread and continues to spread scorsese and his co-writer eric roth saved the summing up for the end in a devastating coda that i don't want to spoil other than to say it jumps ahead by a decade or two to show how great american crimes are made into the stories we tell to entertain ourselves the better to put them out of our minds after the show is over it's a long blur but a great one my boy ty burr who gives killers of the flower moon four stars as the raves are in as always we're a doing pleasure it to again you <laughs> yeah we're doing it exactly <laughs> no you know what it's so funny i was like okay we are going to do a new movie every week and i tried to watch the burial which is with tommy lee jones and jamie foxx it's available on amazon prime don't have to get to the movie easy one on streaming and then just we had a lot of stuff going on this week i'm not going to bore you with the details but people are in and out my wife's got a bunch of family visiting so i was like i got a half hour in and i couldn't do it so i said all right we're going to have to just do Killers of the Flower Moon again. That's our new movie again. The first time ever. I'm, getting, you know, Maybe you missed last week's episode. We're doing it again. What I'll actually do, all kidding aside, is Marty Palooza. My man's been everywhere here promoting the movie. So I'm going to give condensed recaps of his performances on Jimmy Kimmel. He had an interview with Timothee Chalamet for GQ. He had a 90-minute interview with the uh, British Film Festival. So there's a lot of stuff going on. So I will, I will just recap some funny stories Marty told. It makes you think about it. There was no actor strike. DiCaprio hates doing press. I think if if I ever see to Cody, he's on family. He DiCaprio never does that stuff. Would he do it for this one? I'm like, I think so. Because it's a $200 million movie from Apple and Marty's his boy. He'd be like, all right, I'll do one. I'll do Colbert. 50, actually, no, I bet you Leo would do Kimmel. I'm like, I'll do Kimmel. 15 yeah. minutes, I'm wearing a Lakers hat and that's it. And don't ask my personal life. Don't ask about the fact I'm 48 and I 25 year old women and we're going to go from there. De Niro, <laughs> De Niro, who's famously shy, doesn't say much. He'll do the He'll do the rounds. He'll go on found. He won't say much. He's just like, oh, yeah, it's about to, uh, you know, Osage.
1: He'll do the face. He'll yeah. be like,
0: I'm I'm De Niro. <laughs> I'm De Niro. <laughs> just squint the entire time. Um, and by the way, a big thanks to Cody because I was so proud of last week's episode. And a thanks to everyone who listened. Uh, if you haven't, go listen. Killers the Firemoon episode. No spoilers. And by now, hopefully you've seen it. If you're a big movie fan, by now you've seen the movie. Opening weekend was massive. I'll get to that in a second. But then we also had it on the main feed. So big numbers. Once I was like, please, just get on the main feed. The Levitre audience will give us a big juice and a big bump. So I appreciate everyone listening. I guess you missed it. My review, but also production designer Jack Fisk, who's got great stories. He told us a great story about how uh, building the house, Lily Gladstone's character, he sets a small house and Marty goes, I'm not going to see her down the staircase. And like he talks in movies, he's referencing Gone with the Wind because he's thinking about having a shot of her coming down the staircase. He's like, no, it's going to be a small house. He's like, okay. And Ellen Lewis, the casting director was really cool. She told stories about Marty and just how decisive he is. And like even minor characters are so important in movies, which is so critical. And she's worked with him since Goodfellas, Casino,
1: Wolf of Wall Street, you name it. And we also played the sound from Marty's press conference. Yes. And him talking about the music yeah, yeah, in yeah. his movies and how like it influences, like I that was very interesting. I agree.
0: His his music knowledge is off the charts. It's great. So if you're saying to yourself, okay, Virk, you're a little biased, okay, well, I'll give you the reviews then. Ninety two percent right now, Rotten Tomatoes, and you go, Okay, that's just a bunch of critics. They all love Scorsese. How about the audience score? That's called cinema score. So when audiences go see it, you give it a letter grade afterwards. A-minus for Killers of the Flower Moon. So critics love it. Fans love it. Everyone's all in. And the money was fantastic. $23 million from three thousand six hundred twenty-eight North American theaters. That also $21 million internationally. Global total of $44 million. We're going to get to the fact it was not first place. Why? Because of Chris's favorite, Taylor Swift, which he did see with his daughter and his wife. Now, despite the second place finish, easily the best start for Marty since 2010's Shutter Island. $41 million debut. My brother and my wife. Both big Shutter Island fans. I've always said I like the movie, but I don't think it's one of Marty's best. And I texted my brother because in one of these interviews, I saw Scorsese. says he he acts. Ax- I wouldn't say he discredited it, but he was talking about it. And he goes, yeah, I kind of regret making it now. Like I should have focused on silence. I should have worked on other stuff. Like it when you just-
1: take a victory that you're like, yeah, yeah see. <laughs> and my brother's response
0: was he goes, because I go just, just to be clear, I go, I've always felt like he wasn't crazy about it. Horror movie, DiCaprio, like. It it didn't come from his heart. I I liked
1: it. I'm a novice, but I liked it. But
0: you liked it. My wife says, No, I think it's like one of his best movies. And I'm like, I I just, you can tell when he wasn't passionate about it. My brother's response was good. I go, It's the only one of his movies from the last 20 years that didn't get a single Oscar nomination. My brother's response was, The Oscars aren't everything. I go, Okay, fair enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How did Mike Ryan feel about it? That's a good question. I'll, I'll get Mike Ryan loved Killers
0: of the Fire Moon. He texted me last night. No, time. that's what I, really, I
1: meant. That's what I was going back to. I'm oh, sorry. You know, like, let me just finish yeah. the Shutter
0: Island point. Yeah. So Shutter Island, in fairness to it, as you liked it, I did like it. Made a ton of movie. $41 million debut back in 2010. That's the most money his movies have ever made opening weekend. The third best of his career is Killers of the Fire Moon. Number two, The Departed. 2006 opened at $26.9 million, which I'm surprised wasn't higher. Like that was DiCaprio, Nicholson, Damon, Wahlberg. Like that's pretty big star power. But still did really well. Having said that, here's why I'm so impressed. Killers of the Flower Moon didn't have, to have its stars promoting the film. DiCaprio and De Niro can't because the actors strike. The movie is three and a half hours long. We live in today's, you know, ADD generation. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, how is it? I go, it's incredible. Like, how long is it? Go three and a half hours. They go past. They go, okay, well, that's your loss. If you don't want to enjoy cinema and art. But I'm so thrilled by the massive amount of people who are like, eh, Three and a half hours, R rating, but I'm seeing it. A minus score, 92% Rotten Tomatoes. Again, this is movies a hit. Now, it did cost $200 million. So Apple's like, we got some work to do here. But- the movie's being distributed by Paramount, and then at some point, it's going to be an Apple TV+. Plus. I tweeted about it, and someone said, oh, where is it on Apple? I said, well, it's not on Apple yet. It's going to be at least 45 days. That's how it works when these movies streaming and theatrical. But the reviews and audience scores are superb, says David A. Gross, who runs the movie consulting firm Franchise Entertainment Research. Between word of mouth, press coverage, and eventual awards nominations, the picture is set up for a strong run now. Most studios a debut in the low $20 million range would be disappointing for such an expensive endeavor. And given the price tag, Colors of the Flower Moon certainly needs to do big business to be profitable. Those Scorsese's movies tend to have significant box office staying power and blah, blah, blah a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, which Chris did see. First place, $31 million, 3,855 venues. You mentioned Mike Ryan. He texted last night. I normally turn my phone off 10-10-30, but I stayed up to watch the Astros game just to find out where I'm going for the World Series. Next week, I'll be on the road as I'm traveling to Dallas Tomorrow, how about them Rangers, home, home <laughs> team wins every. Yeah, I'm fantastic.
1: I, I don't want to go ahead. I'm just good with all of it because I don't like the Astros because of all the cheating stuff, and I'm a Marlins fan, so I don't like the Phillies. So this, I'm, I'm hoping, and you know, this is going to be released after Game yes. Seven in the National League, but I'm rooting for Diamondbacks.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. You get to a point as when your team's out, you just go, well, here's the teams that I hate. Yeah, and As long as they don't win, then I'll just deal with it.
1: You're probably room for the Phillies, though, just like for logistic, logistical purposes. Well, you're 100% <laughs> right. You okay,
0: Travel-wise, that's a two-hour drive to Philadelphia. Like, that's fantastic. Although, now that the Rangers are in Rangers D-backs, it's a very quick flight. I would just be in Texas and Arizona for a week. But you're right. Yeah. Philly, if it wraps in Philly, I can just drive home like, bam, I'm I'm rocking and rolling. Mike texted me at 1140. Just writes, wow, Lily Gladstone. Great film. Mike Ryan's all in my, my, my man, John LaBoy. So it was really funny. Cause I, you know, I saw it as everyone knows the critics screen the week prior. And it's like waiting for your friends to see it now. Like, like I'm waiting for the reviews. Like I'm waiting for my phone to start blowing up. Who's going to start texting me. So my buddy, John LaBoy, who's you know phenomenal cameraman MLB network. He was the first one to text Thursday. He saw the Thursday two 30. He just, it just was like, wow, fucking great movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we start going back and forth and go through different shots. And then, you know, different people start chiming in and uh, listen, I'm just saying anecdotally, I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. As I said, A-minus Score, The Rave Reviews. Everyone's like, this is a really profound, important movie. E.J. Raddick, NHL Network. That's what he texted me. He goes, this is the most important film of Scorsese's career. And he said, it's it's extraordinary.
1: I was texting with Mike a little about it. He wrote a lot of great musicians in it. Yes. What does he mean by that? Like, like Should professional? I give it away? I, there's a, a
0: f- famous musician... I don't want to spoil. Should I give okay. a spoiler? Alert? I didn't I'll tell know. Like, you I'll you be, off I it. don't want
1: to. T- I don't. You shouldn't do it if it's a big spoiler. I didn't you know. know. I, mean, I, th- I didn't know if he meant the music in it is made from great musicians or like the characters in it are. No, great. No, there's actual.
0: It. Yeah, there's actual cameos. The music is great. It's a lot of folk music of that era, and the late Robbie Robertson, who people know is very close with Marty because of the band. He passed away earlier this year. Robbie's mom, Indigenous, I believe Mohawk, because he's Canadian. He did the score, which is incredible. But you're right. There's actual musicians from today that you and I would know who are oh. in the movie. pop up cameos. Oh, okay, which is that's pretty cool. cool. And they're playing roles. Um, Okay, let's summarize some of the stuff I saw. So Marty was on with Timothee Chalamet. How how jealous am I of this guy? He weighs like 140 pounds, which is my goal in life. He's got incredible hair, good-looking guy, good actor, and people seem to love him. Men like him, women like him. He's unbelievable. So I'm like, how did he get this scoop? GQ.com, 30 minutes, Chalamet and Scorsese, and apparently they did a commercial together. It's for Chanel. And that's how it starts out. It's hilarious. Marty's like, direct, he's like, are we shooting this now? Are you going to go here? here. Like, Okay, let's go ahead. And Chalamet's like, yeah. So we did a commercial together for Chanel Bleu. And Marty's like, yep, they want to do it, and he's like, and is like, you know, it's amazing. Like, I can't believe I get to work with you. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And Marty's like, yep. So they start talking, and is like, uh, you know, hopefully we get to make like a, a movie together. But I'm really cool. I got to be directed by you for a commercial. And Scorsese's like, yeah. He goes, listen, I do these jobs. These things pop up. Here's some money. You want to do a commercial? I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, you just him popping in. We'll give you a million dollars. You can direct this commercial for Louis Vuitton. Awesome. Directed by Martin Scorsese. I'll just take that money. Put that towards Colors of the Flower Moon. Let's keep this going. And and he said his shooting style is interesting. He said, you know. People overcomplicate things because I said this about Killers of the Fire Moon. I, I don't think it's complex the way he shot it. And by the way, we reached out that the people at Apple were great. I said, can we get Rodrigo Prieto, the cinematographer? He's very busy last week. They go, honestly, he's too jammed up. But I said, no problem. Oscar nominations. Let's reach back again. So I do think we might get some people from Killers. But Marty goes, when I'm shooting something, there's two questions you ask. Like I'm 80 years old. I did this for 50 years. Am I shooting with a normal lens, a long ends or a wide angle lens? First thing. Second thing, camera movement. Am I panning? Are my tracking panning obviously means the camera's here and you move it. If you're tracking it, the camera moves with you. Because then I look at the focal length and I go from there. Like those are the three simple things. Whenever I'm on set, I'm doing. And he said, whatever the films I've done, that's the, that's the visual style that I look for. And that depends on the subject matter. Chalamet grew up in New York. So they start talking about taxi driver and Marty goes, I mean, this is no surprise to anybody. I'm, I'm born and bred New Yorker. I'm an urban guy. And he said, you know, I used to live in Jersey city, union city back in the sixties. It was cheaper. And I said, my like, oh God, I had no idea. Marty lived in Jersey as a Jersey guy. Now I was adopted. I was like, that's very cool. And he goes, I take the bus to Port Authority. And be laughed. He goes, if you ever go to New York City, the one thing that still feels like dangerous and kind of like from the 70s is Port Authority, which I'm laughing because that was the bus I took last week to go see the movie. I'm like, I, I went from my house, 35 minutes. As my friend Janet's point out, I mentioned my three bathroom breaks before seeing it last week. But Port Authority, he goes, you go to Port Authority? And Marty's like, yeah, that's the one place you're still like. I I, got to be careful here. Like, this still feels like still has an edge to it. I was like, yeah. And then he tells a story. Kashalmi goes, Hey, just tell me the story again when you met Bob. And he goes, So De Palma reintroduced ourselves. De Palma's worked with De Niro his first few movies, which are really funny. By the way, Nat Segaloff's our author next week. He's got a new book. It's about Scarface. And uh, I I referenced one of the De Palma movies called High Mom, which is really funny. It's an early comedy he did with De Niro. So De Palma and De Niro are buddies. And he goes, Hey, I'm going to this house. And Marty's there. And De Niro and Scorsese are chatting. And then they get to dinner, and De Niro looks at me and like, I remember you. And Marty's like, Yeah. He's like, Yeah. And Scorsese says, He goes, I grew up around these streets Prime, Houston, Mulberry, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Street, where he was born. And he said, De Niro was from Kenmore Street. That was his crew. So De Niro looks at me and he goes, I, I know you are. He goes, You know, you used to be with buddies with Joe Morale and Curdy. And, and, and Marty goes, Oh, yeah. He goes, Oh, my God. You know Joe and Curdy? And he goes, oh, you're, you're with LBJs. And he's like, Yeah. And then De Niro goes, I'm Bobby. And Marty's like, Oh, my, Bobby Milk. His nickname was Bobby Milk because he had like a very pale complexion. He's like, "Oh my god, like, that's pretty cool." Like it's like when you meet somebody. You go, I don't know, Florida suburbs enough for Miami, but if you're like, "Oh, you're the guy from whatever, whatever," I'm like, "Yeah, I grew up around here." So he said, "You know, we would hang out like after hour bars." And he goes, "Like, you know, I liked one member of his crew. I didn't like some members of his crew, but you know, you just hang around his kids." So he goes, "It was really funny that to kind of see him make that connection." And he said, "You know, the way he is so reticent." He said, years later, Michael Powell, who's a brilliant director of the Red Shoes, one of Marty's close friends, Thelma Schoonmaker's late husband, Thelma Schoonmaker's his editor. They get together. He said, I had a place on 57th Street. And Michael goes, I really want to meet De Niro. And Marty's like, hey, I don't, I'll have him come over. And he goes, we're having dinner. And then at some point, Powell says, I understand De Niro will be coming as well. And Marty goes, yeah, he's right here. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> like what? And he goes, he goes, De Niro was so like anonymous and unassuming. He was so yeah. unlike what he expected. He's like, oh, my God. Like, he goes, he's just like, he's. And even one of the interviews, I just saw one on Good Morning America. No, what's the one with Gail King? CBS Morning News, one with Burleson. I guess they taped it a while ago. And she was like, it's so cool. Like, I can't do a Gail King impression. She's like, you and Bob and Leo walking to a bar. Marty's like, and Marty goes, well, it's kind of funny because he goes, Bob's just like, he just doesn't talk much. Like, he's quiet. He goes, but Leo's very chatty. And he goes, and I'm very chatty. So it's mainly just me and Leo talking a lot. And Bob just sits there. He's like, with "Mm -hmm." the
1: face, doing the face.
0: He just does the face the entire time. And, he, and then so Chalamet says, what is it about Leo? And he goes, we just have a similar sensibility. He said that curiosity. We played that clip that Chris mentioned last week where he said, Leo's watching Criterion Channel, Tokyo Story, listen to Ella Fitzgerald records. So Leo is kind of an old soul, which I, I didn't know. And that makes sense. He connect with him. And one thing Chris says, he laughed about with Chalamet. He goes, I'm always amused by how people think my films should be more moralistic. And he was "Give an example. He goes, when Wolf of Wall Street screened, half the critics loved it. Half of them hated it. New York Film Fest. Because the critics that loved it were like, "Oh, it's funny, it's over the top, it's ridiculous." The ones that hated it goes, "Why is Marty devoting three hours to praising this guy who's ripping off people?" And the guy who liked it turned to the other guy and he goes, "Do you really need Martin Scorsese to tell you that these guys are bad? Like, you want, like, you want some scene with them, like, in in chains and being like, he's like, he knows they're bad. Of course he knows they're bad. Like, you need, like, this is like ruining society that he's like What a ridiculous take." And he said, you know, Marty, because it's like, you know, the ancient Greeks back in the day, you know, they had their violence off stage. They're like then you should see what happened to this man. He's like, I, I show you what happens. Like, if you don't right. like them, like, I'm just, I'm going to do it in your face I'm Gonna do it that way. He was on Kimmel. He was really good. Uh, K- Kimmel said, he goes, I love one of your movies called Italian American, which is a documentary Marty made back in 74. I think Jimmy, like Bill Simmons, his mom is Italian. So he said, you know, it, there's this great scene where, um, yeah, you know, at the end of credits, he has Scorsese's mom's like pasta sauce because, you know, true Italians call it gravy. They don't call it sauce. Like my buddy, Michael Lombardi and Marty's like, oh, yeah, yeah, because that's a big thing. Like, you know, how does your mom make the sauce? Like I said, Kimmel's like, no, it reminded me of my upbringing as well. And he said, uh, it's just so funny watching your movies because, you know, I see different connections within within Italian-Americans, but also what you do. I he said, for you to make a Western, it's just so interesting because you're just an urban guy. And Marty goes, yeah. He goes, you know, when I was there, we were shooting in Oklahoma. And he goes, one day it was so hot. It's like 105 degrees. And De Niro walks in. He's like, oh, my smokes. like He's like wearing like, you know, a seersucker suit. I'm like, man, it's, it's hot out here. And, it, and I said, I can't believe we're here in the forest. And someone turned to me to go, Marty, there's like three trees.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: forest. <laughs> it's like, What kind of a forest is this? He's like, you know, I'm just I'm just a very urban guy. I can't handle that stuff. He also and you know, the, you, you can't do an interview now. It seems like somebody's going to mention this Marvel nonsense and the fact that he, you know, this Marvel Universe gets mad at him. So the 90 minute interview that I saw he did with Edgar Wright, who's a British filmmaker. At one point, he said, you know, you, you criticize Marvel movies. The exact quote was, you said to me, they're not cinema. They're not movies. They're just like theme parks. They're commercial attractions. And Marty's never backed down. He's like, yeah, because they're just not for me. I just I don't care about seeing you know, Wolverine or all these types of movies. He goes, you know, for me, he goes, you know, it's kind of like when someone says content creation, which I'm sure our buddy Bimmel has said to people at Metallock, we gotta work on our content Marty goes, you know, when I hear that, he goes, I'll give you an example. He goes, when I'm at home, he goes, I always have TCM on Turner Classic movies. So he goes, like, I'm doing stuff. I'm with my daughter and whatever. And he goes, I'll look up and I'll I'll watch a certain scene. I'll remember a shot. And, oh, it's so cool. He goes, that to me is like just content. Like it's just on in the background. And eventually I check it out. He goes, that's not a movie. Like a movie is something like it's an immersive experience. I'm spending years of my life that I want you to sit in a theater for three and a half hours and like absorb this extraordinary experience. So if we're just looking at content, that's like an assembly line thing. Like, you know, here's, he goes like Francesca does these TikTok videos, right? She does a video of me. That's content creation. It's just five minutes. You watch it on your phone. Okay, moving on. Because that that to me is not what movies are. So if if you want to be offended by that or you don't like that,
1: like, that's just my view of it. I'm just an old man at this point. So I mean, but Marvel movies are what he's talking about. Just different made differently. Correct. It's just, he's like saying, is he saying Marvel is like
0: TikTok? Like that's, I think he's basically trying to make it sound like it's, it's easily disposable. Right. Without saying, I think he's like, you watch it and you move on to the next thing. Right. And I think he's like, I like movies that you sit there. The one big shock is and one of the interviews I saw, they said, What'd you think of Oppenheimer? Because he obviously watches a lot of current movies, but he mainly watches old movies. So he said, oh, Honestly, I haven't seen it. He said, I really do like Christopher Nolan's movies. I'm a fan of his work. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but he said, I will get around to it at some point. And he said, I, and if I see it, I'm gonna watch it like 70 millimeter IMAX, all that kind of stuff. He's like, I've just been so busy with killers and post-production, etc. He said, But I love the Barbenheimer phenomenon, like with the fact that that week and everyone was seeing one or both, I think it helped both movies. And he goes, and let's not forget. And then he laughed. He goes, let's not forget who takes credit for Margot. He calls her Margo Roby. Maybe that is how you pronounce her name. He goes, who gets credit for Margot Robbie? Uh Her debut was in Wolf of Wall Street. And then he told the story again how when they cast her, she like it's the one scene where her and Leo are getting into it, and she like freaking slapped DiCaprio like hard, like a legit slap. And he's <laughs> like, like like, cringing and laughing. And then he's like, cut. And Leo's just like. Wow, and she's like, "Oh my god, I can't play it. Like I'm dead." And they're like, "Nope, you got the part. Like <laughs> that, that's what we need. We need somebody who's not going to be intimidated by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's just going to freaking wail on him." So he's big on Barbie. I don't know if Marty saw it, but he does love Margot Roby, as he calls. Her.
1: I love the idea of Marty Scorsese being able to get Oppenheimer on some 70 millimeter thing at any moment. Like that's just like that's such <laughs> right. a first world thing of like right. I, I'm going to go see it the way it was intended, even though it's not in theaters anymore. <laughs> I will rent out an entire theater and have it put there for me. It did kind
0: of sell that way. He's like, I haven't had a chance yet, but I'm gonna get it done. I'm gonna see the waves. I'm like, okay, I'll just make a phone call. I'm like, up yeah, we'll get this maybe done in for his it.
1: like basement. He has a full seventy millimeter. Yeah, that's actually not bad. He might have his
0: own movie theater. There's just rent fourteen out of all them in America.
1: Available. One is in Marty's house.
0: Yeah. But it was really it was entertaining stuff. So if you want to go Google it, I just saved you some time. But you can go watch 15 minutes on Jimmy Kimmel, 30 minutes on GQ.com, or 95 minutes. There's also a podcast I listen to, Directors Guild of America. If you do a quick Google search DGA, it's with Martin Scorsese. It was pretty cool. It was just him talking about mainly about killers and just the whole
1: story of it, indigenous people, et cetera. What I always is find there interesting an inter- is, is there an interview he's done that you haven't heard yet.
0: No. And what's so great is like, uh, this is why I love our audience is that like, if I haven't, someone's making me aware. They're like, Hey, just, you know, he just did this. I'm like, yep. Like the, the, the podcast I hadn't heard. And then someone texted me, my buddy, Josh Horowitz is like, yep, this is a red flag for him. Like, thank you very much. I'll stop what I'm doing right now. <laughs>
1: Got my train minutes. ride. It, it's
0: exactly the t- I'm still taking the train ride. Exactly. If I didn't have the train ride, I'm like, Nope, that's an easy 30 minutes. I'll knock that out. We're good to go. So it's good. Um, it made me laugh last week, but after I gave my written review, I'm like, okay, like there's gonna be one thing bad. I'm like, Nope. Perfect. Wouldn't change the thing. And and now I'm waiting because it's like the reviews have been awesome. Audiences are enjoying it. Who's going to say the thing? Someone's going to, there's going to be some <laughs> sort of backlash because someone goes to me, it's going to win all the Oscars. And I go, I didn't say that. I, I think it's the front runner for best picture. It's also October 24th. And we have an actor actor strike. If the Oscars happen, they'll happen in February in the next four months. Someone's going to start to criticize something. I'm going to predict right now. Cause I think I saw some blurb. Some indigenous groups have said, Hey, here's an issue we have. The movie, like it's showing the eradication of our culture, et cetera. I'm not disputing whether or not that's an accurate take. My point is, though, every movie is a front runner, and then something happens, and then it's the movie to beat, and the wing gets taken out of its sails. Belfast was supposed to win Best Picture, got taken down. Coda won Best Picture, so I don't know. It's too early to say, but yes, the movies that are going to be Best Picture nominated are Killers of Flower Moon, are Oppenheimer. I think Barbie's going to get some nominations. I think Gosting might get nominated for supporting actor. I think it might Barbie get for-,
1: for Best Film.
0: Best film might be a reach, but again, there's 10 nominees. So I don't know. I, I think It'd it's a reach. Set design. But... Exactly. Production design. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Score. What's the song? For? Look, Dua Lipa. I think she did a song for it. delegate will get nominated. Goss? I mean, like Margaret Robbie might get nominated. Best actress. No. We'll see. I I'm, I, I, I'm with you. I I, I personally <laughs> hope it doesn't happen. Let's be clear. <laughs> Other nominees, because someone said to me, he goes, so, so best actors, DiCaprio. I said, mm, it's going to be DiCaprio or Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, but also nominated. I can't wait. My main man, Paul Giamatti, who's never been nominated for best actor. He's got a new movie called called The Holdovers, which is a reunion with Alexander Payne, who directed him in, uh, in Sideways. And they said he's awesome in that. Your boy, Joaquin Phoenix, is in Napoleon. That's coming out in November. That feels like a nomination. And Bradley Cooper has a movie called Maestro. Your favorite phil from the hangover and that movie he wrote directed started like that netflix movie uh, he's Project doing all show.
1: that he's doing the whole thing Dude,
0: you gotta like he is gonna be i mean he might do cinephile I'd be like i'm not gonna say no to anybody i need to promote the crap out of this thing if the strike's over so that's, let's not get crazy no and supporting actor feels like right now de niro could win his third Oscar. Like he's incredible in colors of the Flower Moon. Hasn't been nominated since Silver Line's playbook, but Robert Daniel Jr. for Oppenheimer has never won, and he's great in the movie, too. So you got two Bobs. Never Bob too David early.
1: Bob never too early for an Oscars preview.
0: Yes, your very early Oscars preview <laughs> in the midst of an actor's strike. Uh that's enough out of me. We've recapped. If you're a Siskel and Ebert fan. I think Cody's too young for Cisco neighbor. You're 35. 36. I just know of them. I know they're yeah, the people absolutely. that review movies. Yeah, they hate. It was like 25 years ago. So you were 10. So you weren't listening. Your dad, too old for Cisco neighbor. He's, he's aware of them, <laughs> but he was like 60. He was like, I, I can't listen to these guys. Before we get to Matt Singer, who's got a great book, Opposable Thumbs. He talks about Cisco neighbor, where the thumbs come from. They like each other. They hate each other. My man, Ben Lyons. Ben Lyons very famously replaced him. Got. Ripped by Roger Ebert. Singer tells good stories about that. Uh, ben Mankiewicz was also involved. So you really enjoy the interview. Before we get to that, though, I do want to give Chris the floor. He did see because someone said, you've got to you got to discuss the Taylor Swift movie. It's the biggest movie in America. I go, fine. Chris Cody has very graciously seen the movie. Please give us your review of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour.
1: I mean, you got to know, like uh, Spencer Hall said on the Levitard show earlier this week, like, you know, Taylor Swift is not may not be for some people. But if she's for you, she puts on a good show. I'm not going to criticize her show. The the concert, it's weird seeing a concert in a movie theater. There was only 10 people in there, so it's weird to like there's no energy. You know, like it's been it's like you said, it's been popular, but the, when I went, there happened to be only 10 people in there, so it was kind of weird. Wow. Um but the concert itself, like I need to go see this concert. It it's like as high-end production level that you will get with any concert that you've ever been to. Like period. Oh, okay. I've been I've seen the Rolling Stones. You've I've seen, seen Springsteen. I've seen I've seen great shows, and it's just production value wise, it's a chef's kiss. But you know, my, it took my daughter. My wife wanted to go. Like it was fine. There was daughter five
0: turning six, loved
1: it. Yes, and there was like it was like three over three hours. So there was like for me, they could Whoa. have cut. A handful of songs like i was looking at the playlist i'm a big cheater when it comes to concerts i like to know what's coming next so yeah. there were some times where it's like all right there's like five songs before i know the next one so Ugh. if you're a diehard taylor it's all up your alley it's a well done show it's there's no surprise that it's everyone talks about what a great show it is but as a movie product you know it was fine my daughter loved it she danced the whole time so that's really what it was about your daughter for me believes your wife, three Maple
0: Leafs. You're going two Maple Leafs.
1: I'm the, I'm going out to the bathroom every 20 minutes, looking across the hall at Flowers of the Killer Moon. Killers. Of, I always have, I have like you're not I, the only I, one, by the way.
0: Somebody the tweeted me. They go, how great is Flowers of Killer Moon? I go, you and I Cody have dilex- the title.
1: Dyslexia with that title, but it was right across the hall. So I like there were so many times where I was just like, honey, can I go watch Killers? Like I, it's really where I'd rather be right now, but here I am. You're going to love it, dude. I'm serious. I, I can't wait for you to see it. I'm going to watch it. For you sure. Are. thousand percent. Uh, last thing,
0: because somebody did tweet, text me. You know what? Listen to Matt Singer. We'll do it on the back end. Opposable thumbs. Enjoy it. <laughs> Hey, a real pleasure to bring in Matt Singer. His book is fantastic. It's called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. As a huge Siskel and fan, as so many of us are of a certain age, honestly, the book is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. And that's why it's so great to talk to Matt as the book is coming out literally in days here this week. Matt, great to see you, man. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Uh, now that you said you like the book, I'm doing fantastic. So <laughs> You're
0: doing even better. Well, don't worry. I've got notes. We can go through the whole thing here. One of the things I liked about the book is you described the fact that it's a source of some controversy as to who brought them together. So who exactly had the bright idea of Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel together?
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot in the book just about trying to answer that question. And I think the answer that I found was like appropriately, given who these guys were, There, there isn't an ob- there's disagreement. Nobody can quite agree. And like, in a way, it's almost perfect that that's what, how this show was founded, because it's the greatest show ever based on people disagreeing and arguing. Um, but there's a few I mean, th- that's the, the the quick answer. And I mean, the slightly longer answer is there's a few potential, I would say, key people who were involved, the head of the PBS station where they got started um is definitely one of them then there's the producer of the original pilot of the show have you ever seen that it is uh it's a wild it's a wild you can find it out there on youtube it's a wild watch and um you know and there's a couple of other people that you know i spoke to one person who has kind of been mentioned this guy named nick aronson who was interesting to talk to because he's he hasn't been mentioned that much when people talk about this before but according to him he was at the table where the idea first came up at this lunch, which Roger Ebert had 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 definitely said at you know, one or one or two events, you know, crediting him with doing that, being involved. And he was the one when I spoke to him who said, well, you know, he he couldn't quite claim having created Siskel and Ebert. But what he said was he pitched the idea of a show starring Roger Ebert that would have talked about all kinds of shows called opening opening friday and then the show as it was first known was opening sooner to theater near you and he didn't really have he pitched the idea to the network he claims with roger as the host and they would have done a different art each week movies one week books the next week opera the next week with rotating hosts but ebert always there and then they said oh we'll get back to you and then one day he said he was looking at the newspaper or something and saw Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel doing a show called Opening Soon at a Theater Near You. And he went, kind of sounds like what I pitched. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those success has many fathers type situations.
0: I love the fact that they once measured their thumbs, Roger's thumb, a little bit longer. He gets credit for the whole concept of two thumbs up. But these guys Matt about as competitive as it gets. U- uber competitive. Who would sit closer to the host whether it was Letterman or Leno. at once counted each other's words on SNL. Like it's amazing how competitive these guys were which leads to a fantastic anecdote if you can please relate to us about Gene Siskel and Cindy Crawford.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, they were unbelievably c- competitive guys. I mean, um just I mean, that was part of what made them so great is that When, you know, if you and I were disagreeing about something at at some point, one of us might say, all right, fine, and just give it up. They would never give an inch on anything. I mean, in 20 something years, they maybe disagreed or they uh, Gene one time changed his vote on all the movies that they talked about in all the years. So that gives you a sense of all the arguing without changing their minds and just fighting. But, yes, they were hyper competitive about everything. And one of the things they would fight over is when they would go on talk shows, they would travel to do publicity, who got to sit where they had they had feelings about the best seats on an airplane. And in their opinion, (laughs) like the best seat was like the first seat on the right in first class. And they would fight over who got that seat. And supposedly on this particular trip, they were once again fighting over who gets the seat I wanted. It's my turn. And supposedly um, they just there was no resolution. And Gene storms off in a huff. And then a couple of minutes he comes back and he's all suddenly his mood has changed and he says roger we are acting like children i'm very sorry you (laughs) can have the the seat i will take the less appealing seat it's this was i'm gonna you know this is wrong of me you take it and roger was very touched and said thank you he sits in the seat they take off on the plane And uh, supposedly Siskel was like, you know, uh, he would just go right to sleep on a flight. So it was unusual that Roger suddenly hears his voice like echoing through the cabin and he turns around and what does he see? But Gene Siskel sitting in the, quote unquote, less desirable seat, sitting next to and having a conversation with Cindy Crawford. So he had somehow... figured out that she was sitting next to the other seat they had the rights to and decided oh. this time to be, quote unquote, nice about it, which is an incredible story.
0: Fantastic. How about the story of Bob Costas and Dots?
2: Yeah, I I mean, that's one that I uh, I had not seen before, but it was on I found it on YouTube. And, yeah, they would I mean, again, they're just they loved and Gene especially loved to, like, create these contests and pitting each other against one another. And, you know, he had this very famous, like, Beat Siskel column about the Oscars every year in the Chicago Tribune. So on this particular episode of uh, later with Bob Costas, it's like a two part episode. They talk about so many different things. It's it's a great like dual appearance by them. And at some point, the subject of like movie candies come come up and Gene likes dots and others don't. And they're arguing about that. And he's like, I the dots are so good. Because you can tell the difference. And then I, Bob Costas is like, well, they're they're all taste the same. And, and so basically they do like a blind taste test on the show and they put a like Bob's one of Bob's ties is a blindfold over Gene Siskel's eyes and he's tasting the dots. He gets everyone right. And then at the end, Bob tries to trick him. He puts two dots together and Gene, to his credit, he was able to identify that it was a a double dot. And he uh, he correctly identified both flavors on the air. And I think Bob let him keep the tie as his uh, prize for <laughs> successfully winning the the impromptu dots contest.
0: I got to ask Costas about that story. That's hysterical. I also like the story when they're on with Letterman and Letterman's just crushing the piano, just how bored he was by that movie. And then gave a note to Cisco, which he said, you've got the world by the ass. Yeah. And you quote them as saying they're wealthy. How much money were they making?
2: Let's put it this way. They were wealthy enough that they would turn down contracts that we would have been like, oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Like like the story that multiple people told me was that Apple wanted them to endorse like the early Macintosh computers. And Roger was like his whole life was a devotee of Apple. He loved Apple products. He was an early adopter and he always loved Apple and different people told me different amounts but you know like some people said they were offered a million bucks each to do these ads and they turned it down uh and their their what they claimed was becoming um pitchmen for anything not just apple but any product would have kind of sullied their reputation as you know objective critics and um i think that's admirable i don't know how many of us would have been uh, had those kind of um morals and ethics but uh like i said i guess they were doing well enough on the syndicated series which they were doing from the early 80s all through the end of the show in the in the late 90s and then obviously roger kept going for several more years like they were they they doing well enough at that that uh, i guess it was maybe a little easier for them than it might be for some of us to turn down a million bucks so were they millionaires oh yes easily yes for sure multi-millionaires yeah i mean i think uh, yes i don't know their net worth sure. and i'm sure if we googled that I, i'd never trust any googling of net worth I, I would love to know what my net worth is according to uh, google <laughs> but yes i mean they were i mean i i think this the, the one of the few like definitive figures i found somewhere was something like you know that their first quarterly check for the first time they were in syndication was some was it was a six-figure check just for like you know, 12 episodes or something. And that's the very first year of the very first contract. So you extrapolate that, you know, to uh, the increases they got when they went to Disney and then every single year for the next it was uh, was something like 14, 15 years, somewhere in that neighborhood that they were at Disney, I guess. So, yeah, definitely.
0: Because what would the Sun-Times and Tribune be paying for a film critic, even if at that level 250? (sighs)
2: Boy, I hope so. That sounds great to me. I mean, even now, that would be incredible. um as someone who mostly makes a living as a film critic. But they were, yeah, there was an article um in in some some place that I found that had that talked about, you know, even before they were doing the syndicated versions that, yes, they were like the best paid critics um at that time. And that was just from doing like um, sneak previews, print. And also they were also doing local TV and radio and stuff. I mean, they really were kind of mini moguls, you know, in their field at that time. They were huge. And I think Gene Siskel had a story about or someone told me this story that Gene said to someone at one of the shows something to the effect of. I'm paraphrasing here but like I got it made. I write it one time and I sell it four times because I do it in print. I do it at local TV. I do it on the radio. I syndicate it. I do it at sneak previews or at the movies, you know, like which is true. That's I mean it was a it was a a, a great gig and and they were good at it. I mean it wasn't just yeah. you know, it wasn't <laughs> just a a hustle. They were they were the best.
0: Greatest comedic show of all time is the Larry Sanders show. How about the fact Gene was on and Ebert was not? Stunning.
2: Well, that there's a story about that, too. I mean, there's so many stories about these guys. Like, literally, we're just sitting here telling stories, which is fantastic. <laughs> like, um, I believe as the story goes, which was related to me, the offer for the Larry Sanders show was for Cisco and Ebert. And I believe that, that Roger had some sort of conflict. And so and they generally did not do things separately. They you know, that that was they were a package deal for the most part, for these especially for these sorts of appearances. Roger couldn't do it. So they said, "Okay, we're going to we're not going to do it. Hopefully we'll get to do it some other time. And uh, they that was that. But then Gene wanted to do it so bad that he kind of went behind Roger's back and said, "Um, listen, I will I will do it. Yes, I I will. I will be there. And so that is why in that appearance, it is just Gene is that it was supposed to be both. They wanted both of them. But when Roger couldn't do it, Gene decided I'm going to do it anyway. And I I don't think uh, Roger was too pleased about that either.
0: We're talking with Matt Singer right now, who's obviously a very good guy and a very good author. Poseable Thumbs is his book, available now. On Carson, it's the only time they hugged. And then they went out there, and Chevy Chase was there, and Roger, to his complete credit, criticized Three Amigos. He said, Chevy Chase has given us lots of great films, so he'll continue to do so with Three Amigos. is not one of them. And I think, Matt, that was their essence. These guys were always honest. They didn't give a damn. They wouldn't kiss Liberty ass. Siskel would ask Denzel Washington, are you scared that Malcolm X will scare white people like these guys really were and really did have a lot of integrity.
2: They did. And I think especially on those like talk shows, that's part of how they really blew up is that, you know, talk shows, everybody's smiling and fun and we're having a great time. And oh, your new movie is great. And then it ends up being, you know, a piece of junk. They (laughs) refuse to play that game. You know, if someone made a crappy movie and they happen to be on the show right before them and they happen to be sitting next to them on that couch. Which, man, I don't know how anyone stayed like if if you were on before Siskel and Ebert, do not sit on the couch while they are having their appearance. That was a bad call by literally anybody, because you're just you're just sitting there on a silver platter because they're going to come out and say, oh, that thing you made was really bad, which like you mentioned it. They did that with Chevy Chase. He was there. I mean, in that case, he's there promoting Three Amigos. It's not just that he's been in this movie and it came out five years ago and they're going to, oh, ho, ho let's have a little fun at your expense about this crappy movie you made a few years before. He's right. there and his job is to promote his new motion picture Three <laughs> Amigos. Then he moves over and Siskel and Ebert come out and what do they do? Johnny asks them, well, what's the worst movie coming out for this Christmas season and roger's like i gotta say three amigos because that's my opinion and and i mean you can again you can find that on youtube they are the best for like youtube rabbit holes just watching their stuff it's amazing and yeah you can see what happens and and according to what they claimed after the fact supposedly i mean this is what they would say that you know like after the show chevy kind of came to them backstage and claimed he wasn't the biggest fan of the movie either at least that's what they said But uh, yeah, that was I mean, that was part of their secret sauce is that they would say things that nobody else on one of these shows would say, which is the honest truth. Uh, I love the open used to have,
0: uh, you know, Abbott and Costello style odd couple open. Where did they get the music? I don't think that's in the book. That music is so inextricably linked. Where did that music come from? It feels like Kirby enthusiasm music. Like I always think
2: of that. I think a curb. This was
0: like Like, who came up with the music to the Cisco
2: neighborhood open? You found one of the things that I could not no one could give me an answer to. And I wanted to know that also because I love that music. And it's like yeah. it, for a long time, it was the ringtone on my cell phone because I'm such a big <laughs> Siskel and Ebert fan. That's great. The I found out where, you know, like the very first music from Sneak Previews, the original version of the show was like library music that was from The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet that they found. That was <laughs> I learned that information, but nobody quite. Yeah, I didn't get the. Nobody could remember where that music came from. I, I And it is such a classic theme oh. song. And I love the opening credits, like you mentioned. I mean, my favorite yeah, when the truck comes through, The, truck, comes the, the, taxi, comes the my taxi favorite is the, is the taxi, the taxi driver who leans, you know, Gene gets in the taxi and he's just like, thumbs up. <laughs> so funny. Um,
0: it's amazing to think how many movies these guys saw film critics for three decades, 250 movies a year, that's 7500 movies, hour 45. 13,125 hours in theaters, 8,760 hours in a year. Like, I love how you quantified it like that, because that's how you appreciate how many movies these guys saw. And for them to really like a movie, how impressive it was. Who do you think was the harsher critic? Because I think later in his career, the criticism was Ebert likes everything. He's giving everything thumbs up. Who was the harsher critic, Gene or Roger?
2: Right. Um, I think in different contexts, they could both be harsh. But I guess if you made me pick one or the other, I would probably say say Gene. Yeah, I would think. I mean, the the thing with Gene was um, and this is something, you know, for the book, I watched and rewatched every episode I could find hundreds and hundreds of episodes. And what you would see is that it wasn't like good enough for him a lot of times for a movie to be pretty good. It was like he was constantly measuring them up to the greatest movies ever made. You know, if there was a new biography, well, it's not as good as uh, Citizen Kane. It's not on the level of that. And then Roger would say, like, well, of course it's not on the level of the greatest movie (laughs) ever made. You can't measure a movie that way. And Gene's response would always be like, yes, I can. I want every movie to be a masterpiece. I want it to be as great as possible. If it's not living up to that standards, like, what are we doing here? Why are we wasting our time? So... Um, I, I think that he, he could be a little, a little, uh, tougher, um, but you know, they, they both had different kinds of movies that they liked and maybe, you know, on the flip side could be a little easier on Gene loved documentaries. So, you know, I, I think he was, he would go a little easier maybe, or he was more open-minded to any sort of documentary. He loved nonfiction movies. And often if uh, with fiction movies, he would complain that they weren't, as interesting as a documentary or they didn't have the insights of a documentary. You know, uh, uh, one thing I noticed, which I had never noticed before, even as a huge Siskel and Ebert fan, even as a huge Roger Ebert fan, reading all his reviews, all his books. Roger, I could not give a thumbs down to a movie about a dog. If it has a dog, he loves it. He gave thumbs up to Air Bud, you know, (laughs) it didn't it didn't really like you. uh, he gave thumbs up to Benji the Hunted, you know. so. He he loved. And, and then you go and look at his um, his memoir, Life Itself, which is a great book. Yeah. And there's a whole chapter about the dog that he lost as a kid that his parents took away from him. And it left this hole in his soul. And then you watch these reviews and you go, yeah, that makes sense. Because he clearly like he had this like profound, uh, intense relationship with dogs. And it was expressed in his reviews of things like Air Bud and, uh and Benji <laughs> the Hunted.
0: It's well-documented how much they did for Errol Morris. It essentially gave him his career. Hope Dreams, of course, the complete fur around there. And Steve James is forever indebted, as he says in the book. It helped me more once we got snubbed, because they championed the movie. It didn't matter. They championed again, didn't matter. But once it really got stuff for the Oscars, then it became a big deal that Siskel and Ebert are praising this movie. They're calling it the best movie of the year. Chicago guys, inner city documentary, et cetera. It made me get to thinking, Matt, What are the stuff that I was personally impacted by Siskel and Ebert and the two jump out. One false move. That great Carl Franklin movie. Billy Bob thought and they both mm-hmm. love that movie. Yep. And I wouldn't have seen it without their endorsement. And I think it's a great, great film. And the other one's a documentary. Crumb. Terry's White House Crump is one of my favorite documentaries, and those guys went crazy for it. So I'm just curious, as a critic yourself, what's a couple movies do you go, man? I always think in my memory, because of Siskel and Ebert, they got me into that one.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I could name a lot of them, but like the first uh, two that come to mind were a few years later. Um, I was a teenager, I managed, you know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, so I got movie theaters, but I don't have, you know, art house theaters. And so I'm watching the show every week, but there's some movies that I just can't see because they're not going to play the uh, the Freehold Metroplex in uh, Freehold, New Jersey. No offense (laughs) to the Freehold Metroplex. Right. And uh, I was on a trip and I, I was in Providence, Rhode Island, and and that on this trip, I was able to see train spotting. And Lone Star, the John Sayles film. Lone yeah, Star. they love that movie, too. They, that they was in top
0: ten. Number five. I remember I love that movie. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So and those were both movies that they had really, you know, championed. And yeah. um I wouldn't they call it I like mean, a I, modern day Chinatown. I remember they, they were yeah, crazy for those exactly. Yeah. and and those are the kind of things like, look, I could have could I've seen it on home video on VHS if I had waited, Of course. but yeah. to see it in a theater, I would not have been able to do. and And um, I vividly remember both experiences. I could tell you where I sit and it sat in each theater. and you know, it was like a mind blowing experience absolutely. and and for sure, I would not have seen those movies at least in a theater. And had wanted to see them that badly, if not for them uh, uh, praising them on Cisco and Ebert. I've lately gone on a run, which I'm sure you appreciate also do, of just buying DVDs. Like, I'm
0: tired of just streaming. I like to physically hold it. So I'm jotting down Lone Star right now. I'm going to be ordering that later. So I haven't seen that in years. You're right. It's awesome. Uh, as you mentioned, going down the rabbit hole, the doors is a great disagreement they had. I was laughing the other day watching them arguing over the doors. I believe you had in here the biggest disagreement is she's out of control. That's a pretty epic one.
2: Uh, she's out of control, I think, is one of the ones that they hated the most.
0: The ones that just hated the most. That's right. They
2: hated it. Right. Which and, uh, rightfully so. I mean, Uh, totally
0: Danza. Right, right, right. Yes,
2: exactly. I mean, one of the fun things with the with the book was, you know, I've I've seen lots of movies, um, but then you would watch these episodes and you'd turn it on and they'd be reviewing five movies. One of them is a masterpiece. Uh, one of them you've seen, and it's famous, and then there's three movies you've never even heard of, and they're calling one of them the worst movie, you know, one of the worst comedies ever made, and it's like She's Out of Control, which is like Tony Danza as a crazed father of a teenage daughter who's like 16, she wants to start dating, and he's uh, treating it like she's, you know, uh, he, that he loses his mind that she's attracted to boys, and it's like... <laughs> It's the most (laughs) unbelievable premise for a movie. And he just becomes incredibly creepy and disturbing, trying to stop his daughter from like, you know, wearing dresses and skirts and things like that. Um, But yeah, that would that would happen all the time. I'd watch it was so much fun to do the research because you'd be like, well, what random movie am I going to discover? And then you watch it. You get to watch all the movies, too. You know, there's an appendix at the back of the book. That's the flip side of that, which is all the movies that I didn't know that they kind of champion that didn't become hoop dreams and gates of heaven. That were the movies that they love that for one reason or another kind of fell through the cracks and there's some great movies in there. And hopefully I do remember that Ebert loved Joe Dante's matinee. When I read that, I'm like, you're right. He did love that movie. Oh, that's a- And that's an, an amazing movie. And, um, yeah. you know, that's probably the most famous movie in the appendix of the 25 movies um, yeah. that are in there, oh, of like one. kind of buried treasures. So hopefully people, if they check out the book, they'll maybe check out some movies too.
0: the book is called Opposable Thumbs. Check it out. A few more here for uh, Matt. We'll let them get rolling. I still have the VHS tape if we pick the winners from 92. And that was I remember because Ebert and I, of course, my favorite actress Pacino is saying Pacino should have won for Glenn Gary and Cisco saying, no, it should be Jay Davidson. For The Crying Game, which is another incredible movie. And I remember Siskel's point is saying, Roger, we both saw Joe Mantegna do it just as well as Pacino. And Roger correctly said, I'm not voting against Joe Mantegna. I'm voting of these nominees, and Pacino's Ricky Roma is as good as anything else. And then, of course, Siskel spoils Jay Davidson and the whole generation. One of the biggest arguments they must have had. How could you do that, Gene? It's irresponsible.
2: Yes. Yeah, there's all kinds. I mean, what's fun about stories like this, though, is like, It's a it's fun to watch them uh, argue and bicker about these things, which if you hunt down this particular clip you're talking about, you can see they get really upset with each other. They get so upset that it was like written up in TV Guide. I found the article in TV Guide. They were it was like the, the gossip column in TV Guide was about how angry they were at each other that they kept yelling at each other backstage after the show was over. But I mean the other interesting thing about it besides it just being entertaining is they're debating like what makes a great performance. Like this is a conversation about the art of acting. Well, is it a great performance if I've seen other people play the same role? Should I compare should I compare it to other performances of the same uh, of the same character? Does that matter? Should we consider that? You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing about Siskel and Ebert is it's a really entertaining and fun show to watch, but it was more than just, okay, yeah, we like it. Or, okay, we don't like it. You watch the show, you discover they're, they're talking about not uh, big issues. Like not just even like the art of acting. They'll, you watch your episode, you'll find them talking about, uh, religion, spirituality, morality, politics, all you name it. It's like, you can, you can learn a surprising amount just watching siskel and ebert episodes
0: there's really good stuff in there about when gene dies and the fact that you know roger was just heartbroken that he had no idea gene was this sick you know brain cancer he knew he was ill didn't know how serious it was and then a member of gene's family calls and goes hey listen he, he's not coming back like he's got days to live kind of thing and it, it's Really heartbreaking to think that I could just imagine Roger's hurt because they, as you write the book, they genuinely hated each other for a long time. But did genuinely become friends and close once Roger met Chaz. Once he was married, he said, Gene was, it was so sweet with the way you wrote it. Like he was so happy that Roger found love and like he's inviting him over and like they want to hang out as couples. It was really, really sweet. But I can imagine Roger's world of hurt that Gene did not tell him how sick he was. And, and you know Gene's way of doing it was he, his wife knew, his kids knew his brother, and that was it. And you mentioned Life Itself, a memoir. Of course, Steve James has an incredible documentary. And Gene's um, widow talks about that as well. What I think is really interesting in the book is you show the difference in how they face death. In that Gene was incredibly private about it, yet Roger couldn't have been more open about it. And just Steve James is recording everything. And it's at one point him and Chad are getting in a fight. And I thought he might say, you got to take that up." Roger didn't care. You put everything you in there, warts and all. He, as you and I know, could not talk for many years, look disfigured. People are making fun, whatever Roger said, show it all. And I thought that was really fascinating how you showed that difference in how both these guys face death.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, and I, not to say one is the right way or one is the wrong way, just very, just totally different. Yet another difference between these two guys <laughs> right. in a million different ways that they, they were different. And um, yeah, I mean, I think most people believe and people I spoke to said this, that the way that Gene went about it, which was intensely privately um, affected the way that Roger dealt with it, which was to do the opposite and to be very public. And yes, yeah, Steve James did, uh, uh, you know, directed that, Uh, the film version of life itself. And I talked to him and, yeah, he was saying, you know, he did not set out to make this film about Roger Ebert in his final days, you know, at the time. The memoir was kind of when it when the book came out, it was like a celebration of the fact that he had had these health problems, but he had persevered and he was still doing amazing work. He just he had lost the ability to speak. And that was the plan for the the movie version was to kind of just show what he was doing and and kind of tell his life story. And this is what he's like now. And then like uh, the one of the first pre-production meetings, he, he was like complaining of pain in his hip. And it was like the next day he went into the hospital. And then for like the entire time of they were shooting the film, something like all but a couple of days he was in the hospital that whole time. And it wound up being his final um, months. And there were times where, yes, Steve James would think, well, they're going to make me stop shooting this. This is too personal. It's too private. And he and Roger would not let him. And he said he was really like the perfect interview subject in that he knew what would make a good movie. And he didn't stop him from filming those things. He would encourage him to shoot whatever Whatever was necessary to tell the story the right way.
0: One thing that I was really interesting about the doc, which you did not include in the book, it's not a criticism, just a point, is that Eber was an alcoholic. I thought that was really interesting that in the movie, Steve James mentioned it. I know you didn't. I like what you did, though. You talked about the fact Roger, for a guy who was so garrulous and a great storyteller, he loved nothing more than just having a coffee, being unrecognized and being alone with his own thoughts. I thought that was really just a cool image of Roger Ebert, that kind of way he was. But I I thought that alcoholic thing was interesting. Like He was this rabble rouser and then completely because I I would see it sometimes in his reviews, the way he talked about like leaving Las Vegas, he championed. He loved Albert Finney under the volcano. I was like, okay, maybe that's interesting because of his challenge of substance abuse. Um, Also, and I'm so glad you mentioned this one, because as a gigantic Scorsese fan, when Marty was on with him doing the best movies of the decade, it was incredible because because Roger had Goodfellas in the top five. I remember Marty kind of cheated. He had two at 10. He had heat and he had Malcolm X. But his number three was A Borrowed Life, which is this Asian movie I could not find. And his number one, Martin Scorsese's number one movie of the decades. We called Horse Thief, which had actually come out in 87. but was released in 91? I'm like, you can't find this movie anywhere. But it was, again, such a great showcase for artists like that, that Martin Scorsese would want to go on and say, you know what? I can talk about a horse thief and they'll give me that. They'll give me that area to do it.
2: Yeah. Martin Scorsese still, uh, you know, causing controversy and in uh, and- in the nineties and he's still doing yes. it now. Thank goodness. We still have him around. That's all I can think when you're telling me that story is like, keep, oh, yeah. keep going. Martin Scorsese, keep saying things that, but I mean, yeah, what a great, I mean, look, you have that huge platform. Why not promote a movie that you love? Uh, okay. Yeah. Maybe it's a little strange to recommend a movie from the late eighties in a decade. The best of the nineties list. I concede that point. Right. But Sorry. how? But if people saw that movie specifically because Scorsese recommended it, there, and I'm sure they he, they did. I'm sure there are lots. I'm of still people. trying to find. If someone can send me a link to Horse Thief, <laughs> I will gladly watch it. Trust me. But I mean, I think that's kind of one of the the best parts of that show was recommending things to people who, that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. We already we already mentioned movies like that that we discovered through the show. Right. So um, yeah, it's uh, it kind of sneaks in there on a technicality, but. Great to I think any time they that the show could encourage people to see something they wouldn't otherwise see that's that's a yes. good thing.
0: They went twice as long as Martin and Lewis, the same as Abbott and Costello, which is amazing to think about the longevity of that run. And then we get to afterwards when different people are coming in there. This is what I was surprised by. Different critics are showing up, and by the way, I like Richard Roper. I think more than your book gives him credit for. I don't think you're critical of him, but you're pointing out people were saying wasn't the same. He was deferential to Roger. I thought he was pretty good. I always enjoyed his insight. I still read his stuff. I thought he was. I agree with you. He wasn't nearly as contentious, but I actually thought his opinions were smart and I've always enjoyed his stuff. So I thought Roper and Ebert had more legs. And as you point out the book, Roger picked him. So, of course, he wasn't going to pick somebody he was adversarial against. Why did Manola Dargis turn it down? That's the only critic that said no.
2: I guess she didn't want to do the show i didn't i did not ask i I, if i i've never met manola dargus uh if i ever met on the pod
0: before she's excellent i was like listen i love your okay well next next time
2: you got to ask her this question because that was That was someone, you know, someone else. I I don't remember who told me that or where I read that. But yeah, that she was the one person because we're talking about after Gene passes away before Elvis Mitchell showing up, all these different people yeah, and great people. Yeah. And and pretty much it was a who's who Scott. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody who is anybody in the world of film and film criticism was was being a guest host. And yeah, the supposed supposedly the only person that they mentioned that turned them Turn them down was Manola Dargas. And I bet she would have been great. I don't, I don't know why oh, yeah. she said no. For those that
0: don't know, she's a legendary New York uh, Times Film Critic. She's excellent. All right, last one. My dear friend Ben Lines. Only because of Ben, I got to carry the Oscars twice. He and I worked for the Academy, Oscar.com. We're, we're thickest as thieves as fellow sports guys and movie guys. As we say, we're one of one. And yet, Ben and I, and he knows my passion for film, how much I love Roger, etc. He's never really spoken much about. His experience with him and Ben Mankwitz took over. So I found it really revelatory reading your book and the stuff that Ben went through. You know, at one point, there's a famous article as Ben Lyons, the most hated film critic in America. And uh, I texted him, I'm looking at the text right now. I texted him the other day, I said, Hey, good stuff on Singer's book. He's like, Yeah. He said, You know what? I, you know, I know Matt a little bit. We're critics from way back in the day. He's a good guy. I don't really talk about it much. But I thought he was very candid about what he said. And in the book, he basically says, I just think Roger didn't like my dad. And so when Jeffrey Lyons took over, he just didn't like him. So when I took over, like he's just blasting me every chance he got. And that whole Roger Ebert army is just destroying me. And I also love Ben Mank, which I'm not nearly as close with Mank, but I did text him. And I liked his quote to you, which he said, I know Ben said the criticism didn't bother him, but it'd be tough not to be affected by it. Again, I think Roger Ebert's a brilliant film critic. You and I agree. But I think we can take him out of sainthood for the way he treated my man, Ben Lyons.
2: Yeah. And I think I, I don't disagree with uh, Ben's Ben Lyons assessment of of Roger. I don't think I mean, there are famous stories of uh, Roger and Jean, you know, bad mouthing Jeffrey Lyons. Jeffrey Lyons was one of the people who replaced uh, Roger and Jean when they left. Sneak Previews, their original show, because even though they were on for many, many years, there's basically three different shows that they hosted that all basically look alike. And every time they left the show, they were replaced by new hosts. So when they left PBS, Jeffrey Lyons was one of the replacements and they they were they were not very happy about that and they made and they were not again one of the things that made them who they were was they were honest and they would tell you what they thought and they right. were not happy about these other shows competing with and their competitors too that's the other thing is that they're now their competition and they're not gonna you know they were tough with each other and they were tough with anyone else they perceived to be competition um yeah i mean i appreciated that uh ben talked to me and i do know i mean the very first thing i ever did in tv back when i used to do tv was this one episode of of a mtv trying to do a movie review show and uh he was the host and he was a great guy and we got along great and um yeah I, and then i worked with him on when he and ben menkowitz were hosting at the movies i would do these segments. The critics roundup where we would be talking. Now it would, now it looked like this where we're talking on Zoom. That didn't exist then, but I would go to like Reuters studio or something and they would have me like, you know, uh, be a talking head live via satellite and we would round table review movies, which I always thought was a cool concept and I enjoyed doing that. So I, I you know, I did look back at some of these things that people were writing about him and you know, at that time, I would have I would have done anything because I was such a huge fan to host one of those shows. You know, and then you look at the vitriol that he and I mean, he certainly got it worse. But you talk about you know, and I write about it in the book the way that Richard Roper, who I agree was not a, a bad on that show, and he was good. He, you know, was he Gene Siskel? No, of course not. Um, but pretty much every version of the show was met with. You know suspicion and it's not siskel and ebert it's not as good and i just think thank goodness i didn't wind up getting that job like oh my like can i i I can only imagine the horrible things people would have said about me because uh i'm not gene siskel or roger ebert either so they were fighting an uphill battle all of these different hosts these different versions of the show that followed them and i think the fact that there hasn't been another show like it that has come anywhere close to replacing it in the public consciousness, I think, speaks to just how large they loomed and continue to loom over the movie world. Yeah, I liked your quote from Mank as well, where he said, listen, Ben and I have
0: a lot of strengths, but we were not classically trained film critics, right? We're hosts. We were prompted to interviews. And I liked lines pointing because I was trying to bring in my celebrity contacts and getting actors and they didn't want to do that stuff. So if you're not going to evolve, I'm not using excuses, but it's going to be tough to top the original recipe. So I really thought uh, it was really interesting stuff that you got from both of those bins. Uh, Once again, Opposable Thumbs, Matt Singer, phenomenal book. As you can tell, I could talk his ear off. It's an awesome (laughs) book. Make sure you go buy it. Um, if you give everybody one YouTube clip to watch, kind of go back to what I was saying. What's the one disagreement? If you want some entertainment this morning, this afternoon, night, you go. Oh my God, you got to see this clip where Sister Limbaugh go crazy on each other. What's the movie? I'm t- the Doors is a pretty good one, but what's one that you think of?
2: Oh, The Doors is a good one, man. It's it's tough. I mean, I literally have uh, <laughs> pages of notes of all their biggest fights um, <laughs> that I could pull from. I mean. There are a few I talk about in in the book and uh, the things the ones that I always enjoy the most are the ones where it's not just one angry review. It's like where the angry reviews compound, because one of the things that they did was they recorded the show one take as much as possible. And so they weren't like yelling at each other and then going out for lunch and then coming back hours later, having calmed down, they would yell at each other pause for a second and then go right into the next movie. And they're still angry. And then when they disagree again, that's when the arguments would get, you know, uh, really, you know, really angry. And, you know, there's the famous one with Full Metal Jacket and Benji the Hunted. That's one episode where they disagreed about both of those films. And they literally disagree from the first review, which is Full Metal Jacket, until the like the the video home video recommendation at the end of the episode is uh, is about Stanley Kubrick. So there's and they're so they're still fighting about it. So it's almost a 22 minute argument stretched out across multiple reviews. Um, it's that's really like a like kind of a famous one, but it, it's it's sort of justifiably uh, <laughs> famous because it is really wild to see them fight not just about Full Metal Jacket, but that they could have such an intense argument about a movie such as Benji, the hunted really speaks to one yet another appeal of the show (laughs) is that it didn't matter. Like when they had an important and interesting movie to talk about, they could say very interesting, insightful, provocative things, but they were also able to be entertaining, interesting, funny, witty, uh, when they were talking about junk or you know no offense to benji of benji the hunted but like mm-hmm. um th- it's just as much fun to watch them talk about that so again that was an, yet another secret of the show
0: okay as we close up how many movies do you think these guys each watched 20,000 something like that
2: I mean, I tried to, like, take a take a guess at that in the book just by, you know, averaging out, you know, as a critic. You see, I think we you even mentioned it before. You know, they yeah. see several hundred movies a year. They were critics for, you know, 20, 30 years. That doesn't 250 count. 50
0: movies a year, 7,500 7, movies, film critics for three decades.
2: Right. And so that doesn't. And that's just like the stuff that they're reviewing. That doesn't even count, you know, when, you know, Gene's watching Saturday Night Fever for the 50th time or whatever <laughs> right. it is like. It's it's uh it's crazy. I think it's twenty thousand something like that. It's insane. That's a lot. That's a lot of movies. <laughs> I say that as someone who loves movies. That's a lot of movies.
0: <laughs> it's awesome. Matt Singer, opposable thumbs. Go buy his book. Support him. He's awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. All right. Somebody did tweet me though. Go get a hold of your boy. And I go, I'm not gonna put him on blast, especially at the start of the podcast. We'll save it till the end if someone's still listening. An hour into oh this podcast. Oh boy. Someone said I, something with your dad. I, I, I think you said name a Scorsese movie and your dad said the deer hunter. What
1: happened? Oh yeah. This was did you get this from Yeti, my producer on the Great Cody was, show? Yeah, somebody, yeah,
0: Yeti mastered me because you gotta bury him. I go, I don't I need to hear the context. So you tell me first.
1: The context is we make fun of my dad for not knowing movies. And I know you're saying, Chris, you don't know movies that well either, but it's like basic popular pop culture stuff like who played mrs doubtfire you know what i mean like stuff that the like not you that not the stuff you would know like stuff any casual person would know and my dad is so terrible with it so we do those type of things where it's just like name a robin name a brad pitt movie he couldn't do it we're like name five animated movies and he, Anything, he Not he, even Pixar. He, animated He movies. hymns and haws. He's like, Pinocchio, Lion King. Ah, that one where the girl sings Let It Go. You know, he has, he, it's, it's bad. So it's a funny segment because he's so bad at this stuff. So we asked him, I believe we got on Scorsese movies. That wasn't one of our questions, but we just ended up there conversationally. Yeah. And my dad's like, Deer Hunter. And, and and my brother and I'm like I don't know is it and my brother's like that's right so I'm just like okay yeah that must <laughs> okay, be right okay so it was then. your brother it wasn't you that's fine but I didn't but... know either so we both let him go as if that was because he had said something else that we were like no that's not a Martin Scorsese movie I can't I'm drawing a blank right now was what it, was it, was it was. the
0: Godfather because somebody goes it was I the Godfather. Godfather it was yeah. the
1: Godfather my dad said the Godfather and right, we were he like at first we're like yes and they're like wait no that wasn't no. the him yeah. so and I was like that was Ford Coppola or whatever like you yeah, know so, I'm yeah so like, okay, I. And then so he's like, oh, how about Deer Hunter? And we were like, yes, all right, there you got it. Uh, so okay. we like now I got he, it. We, we called him out on Godfather, but then we let him go with Deer Hunter, but he, he didn't direct Deer Hunter. So,
0: yeah. So you guys didn't know Deer Hunter, but it's worse that your dad thought the Godfather. If, and yeah, if, right. if I'm scoring it at home, I'm like, "Yeah, OK, you and your brother, get, they get the L there. But like your dad thinking the Godfather is worse.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's right?
0: Because like, that's what you go. Well, he does mob movies. Oh, the guy. You go. No, everyone knows he did Goodfellas. Coppola did. Right. The Godfather. So he
1: had zero. And it wasn't even. He wasn't even a producer. Right. Like at one point, my dad's like, maybe he didn't direct it, but he was involved. He had no, no involvement in the Godfather. Zero involvement. Uh, okay. Coppola
0: wanted to do number two. And Marty actually said no because I don't I don't think I'm the right guy for this. And Coppola's like, well, why don't you just do it? How about that? Coppola makes one of the greatest movies of all time, and tells his buddy, why don't you do the second one? I don't want yeah. to do the second one. Like, what do you mean? And Marty's like, No, I don't I think you're like, dude, you did it. They want you, they don't want me to do it. My version gonna be yeah. different. Nah, you and De Niro, you guys will be great. You get to work <laughs> with Al. I think the movie knowledge of the Levitar crew is very strong. Your dad's is the worst. Mike <laughs> Ryan, Mike Brian, very strong. Yes. I think the rest of you guys all have your spots. Like, I think if it's like like by the way, we are interviewing Sly Stallone as a documentary coming on Netflix. Billy Gill and Stu Goddard are going to love this documentary. We have the uh, documentarian, the director, Thom. I thought it was Thom, T H O M, but it's pronounced Tom. Never understood. Why just lose the H? Like to make it easy for everybody. Tom Zimney is going to be on. So like those guys got the action movies. I don't know what Roy's lane is. I don't know. Roy,
1: Roy's like random, like like movies before his time. Roy's like sneaky. He's not. He's actually only like 38, but he, yeah. he has the soul of like a 50 year old. So he can name like movies in the 80s, action movies. Roy's in that. Like Roy can name all those action movies that Stu Gatz is into.
0: Yeah. Like Stu and Billy. They got like predator and all that stuff on lockdown. Yeah. Uh, you've got romantic comedies. Yeah, and and which is just comedies. Amazing. Yeah, I'd say comedies in comedies. general, but I'll even remember like rom coms. Like you'll you'll know more rom com like yes. you would know Fifty First Dates a lot of people oh, I. I'm love like it. Yeah. I'm like love I'm not it. into that. Mike's pretty good. Mike's pretty Mike. The fact that Mike recommended that book about Chateau Marmont, the fifties of Sunset Boulevard. Like okay, so Mike can he can skew older like me. Yeah. Yeah. Love the one that I never like. I think he likes movies, but then I think he knows more than I know. But then someone's he hasn't seen stuff that's very obvious. Love yes. the one I can't get a handle on.
1: He is one that's like he's kind of a fraud. He he wants to yeah. come off like a movie guy, but I'm not so yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, I'm like, you didn't even see like, what the hell? What are you doing? How would you not get around to that? Speaking of text coming in hot here, Mike and I, I think we're going to do a little movie segment tomorrow, looks like now. So we'll, we'll have to add lib here before the World Series from L.A. Me and Samson not getting the invite, but I'll, I look forward to berating him. Uh Thank you, as always, for listening to Cinephile. Thanks to Chris Cody for getting this. Quite frankly, the last week's episode on the main feed is all I cared about. So thank you for getting on the main feed. Thanks to everyone who listened. Uh, when you see Killers of the Flower Moon, go back and listen to last week's episode. Jack Fisk, production designer, Ellen Lewis, casting director, and like Chris mentioned, Marty himself talking to the music and the story and all the rest of that. I'll be on the road next week. We'll get a new episode. Nat Segaloff is the author of a new book called Say Hello to My Little Friend, 50 Years of a Scarface. And I promise I'll watch a new movie, The Burial, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx, available on Amazon Prime. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Go enjoy your Ony.